If you would please open the Bible to Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20, which you'll find in the Pew Bible, if you want to open to it in the Pew Bible, uh, on page 810, in the middle of that first column. You'll also find it in the church program, and uh, we'd love it if you'd have the passage open in front of you, because it's important to us for you to know that it's not my thought for the day, it's actually God's loving word to us. So please have the Bible open, and I invite you please to stand in respect for God's word as we read from uh, verse 17 down through verse 20, page 810. This is um, Matthew's record of the most famous sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The word of the Lord. Gracious Father, we thank you so much for your word to us. We pray now that you would send the Holy Spirit powerfully upon us, the same Spirit that moved Matthew to write these words, that that same Spirit would open our ears and our hearts and give us grace, that we might hear your word, Father, believe it, obey it, and rejoice in it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, In preparing my sermons, I very often listen to uh, sermons by other preachers I know and respect, and this week is no exception. I I turn to my very dear friend, William Taylor. I mentioned William last week. William is the uh, rector, the senior pastor at a church in London, England called St. Helen's Bishopsgate. Uh, It's a church that Leslie and I love very much. My whole family's come to love St. Helen's. It's a, a wonderful ministry in the heart of the financial district in London. And uh, that church is undergoing some really stressful times right now as the Church of England wrestles with some pretty big issues, including human sexuality. And St. Helens is trying very hard uh, to be salt and light in a very difficult situation. And I pray for them. I'd encourage you to please pray for for William Taylor and the people of St. Helens. Uh, I looked at what William had to say on this very passage. And uh, it's tempting to me just to tell you to go listen to his sermon rather than to mine uh, because he did such a good job on this passage. And I'm I'm happy to acknowledge my indebtedness to William as uh, he walked through this passage with his flock there in the city of London. Uh, He told a story at the beginning of his sermon I'm going to retell. Uh, It had to do with uh, his having spent uh, a weekend, as he preached a sermon a couple of years ago, and uh, he'd had a weekend away with some of the church members. And he gave a presentation of the gospel. He talked about the cross. We just sang about the cross. Well, he spent some time talking about the cross, talking about what Jesus accomplished there, uh, that our, now our salvation, our righteousness comes from Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. And uh, he went on and on. I think it was about a seven to ten minute uh, sort of mini presentation of the gospel that he presented uh, there with his congregation who were in attendance at this uh, away weekend. 
And uh, during the Q&A time afterwards, um, a man sidled up beside him and sat down and said, so what I hear you saying is uh, because of what Jesus has done, now we can do anything we want to. Uh, Because Jesus has, on the cross, secured my salvation, it doesn't matter what I do anymore. And William said, well, I just wasted my time. If that's his takeaway from my sermon. Uh, But actually, William said, you know, as much as he misunderstood what I have said, there's a sense in which he, even though he misunderstood it, he got the dramatic significance of it in a way. And William said that, you know, the cross does give us great freedom. It does set us free once and for all from trying desperately to earn God's favor. In Christ, we now have that favor. And so uh, even though this man had misunderstood the gospel um, and and the the significance of it, he, he understood at least one point that the cross liberates us from rule-keeping. It liberates us from a kind of rule-driven effort to try desperately to earn God's favor. And that's a good thing. I mentioned last Sunday from a quote from from, uh, Scott Sauls, the pastor of Christ Church in Nashville. Uh, Scott preached a sermon in which he said in so many words, um, if we have to choose, and sometimes we have to choose, if we have to choose, it is better to be understood as saying God's grace in Christ frees us from legalism and, and, uh, and, and, and to be misunderstood as saying that sort of full stop. It's better to have that than to have a religion that's based on rule keeping and our trying desperately to earn God's favor. And I agree with Scott. I'm paraphrasing him, but I agree with his very important point that if we have to be misunderstood, it's better to be misunderstood in that way. And of course, fortunately, we sometimes can choose to give both. And I'd actually like to think that that's what we're going to do this morning. We're actually going to learn what Jesus has to say about the law. Uh, I will just also add, having mentioned uh, William Taylor in London and Scott Sauls in Nashville, It's been a very interesting debate here at Metrocrest. We've been doing this little series on the Gospel of Matthew. We've talked a lot about sin and repentance. And there's been a very interesting discussion here at Metrocrest about the role of law and what does repentance mean and and how do we repent and what does that actually involve in terms of my life experience. And I've had some very, very helpful discussions sort of thinking that through with saints who are wrestling with that idea. It is an important thing to think through. What is the relationship between law and gospel? And that's actually what Jesus turns to here at this point in the Sermon on the Mount. The most famous, probably most frequently misunderstood sermon of all time. Jesus turns to this very topic in verse 17. So if you would uh, follow along with me as as Jesus tells this ragtag group of disciples who he's just said, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, this is who they are, he says to them, what does that mean in relationship to the law and the prophets? And that's what Jesus is talking about here. Uh, if you follow along the, in the bulletin, the program, you'll see two headings just sort of keep us going in the right direction. Uh, two headings. First of all, the first point is in Christ the law is upheld. And the second point is in Christ the law is fulfilled. Let's think first of all about this first point. In Christ 
The law is upheld. Uh, Look at verse 17. Here's Jesus speaking to the people. He's just told they are salt and light. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. In verse 18, he says, truly I say to you until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. This illustration, this image, iota and dot, that comes from, uh, well, these are Greek words describing um, the uh, Hebrew language. Uh, Iota in in, uh, Greek is a tiny letter. Uh, The dot is a little, uh, just the tiniest dot on the page. And they refer to, in Hebrew, how in Hebrew letters, sometimes the only way you can tell the difference between a letter is the little a uh, little curve, a little line at the top of a letter. Uh, in English, we would call that a serif. You know, sans serif means it doesn't have feet. Serif means it has feet. Well, in Hebrew, sometimes the only way you can tell the difference in a letter is this little tiny mark. Yet it can have such enormous significance. And Jesus says that not one single tiny mark, a dot or an iota, just the tiny, they call it yod in, in Hebrew, that little tiny little tiny stroke of the pen, actually, Jesus says, none of it will pass from the law. So Jesus is here saying something dramatic and striking to his disciples about the law, the law and the prophets. He says he did not come to abolish it. You know, it's very important to get this straight. There's there's actually a a movement in the church. Some of you may have heard of it. It's called the uh, hyper-grace movement. Anybody been following the hyper-grace movement? It's a, it's a movement that's uh, gaining traction around the world. Sometimes it's called the Grace Revolution. Uh, there are a number of uh, preachers who are promoting this particular theology. One is named Joseph Prince. He's based in Singapore. Another is Rob Rufus. Uh, Joseph said uh, famously, God does not want his people to be conscious of sin. That's a quote from his sermon. God does not want his people to be conscious of sin. And there is this movement, whether you call it hyper-grace or something else, there is this movement which is uh, saying to the Christian community that there is no place for law. There is no place for sin and a consciousness of sin. We just had a confession of sin. Well, there are preachers in the world who would say what we just did was actually wrong. God doesn't want us to be worried about those things. He doesn't want us to even think about these things. And that is a school of thought may not always be presented in such dramatic terms, but it sometimes is. And there is this school of thought that says God doesn't care about our sins. Uh, He doesn't care how we live our lives. Uh, He has a different focus, different way of looking at us. And there is a school of thought that is very much in movement today, which tells us as Christians, tells us as disciples, that God doesn't want us to care about those things. The Christian life is to be free of concern about those areas of our life. Well, that flies in the face very directly with what Jesus has to say in his Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says he did not come to abolish the law. He did not come to abolish the prophets. Law or the prophets is a a shorthand way of referring to the entire Old Testament made up of law and prophets. And... uh, Jesus says he did not come to abolish that. 
He did not come to abolish the Old Testament scriptures. He did not come to abolish even one tiny stroke of the pen of God's holy law that he had given and has given to his people. Uh, God's word and God's law is specifically upheld here in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. Jesus has a great deal to say about it. it. He says, actually, that it has significance for the way we live our life and the way we teach. Look at what he says in verse 19. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Don Carson has called this one of the most challenging passages in the Bible for a Christian. A very, very challenging passage. And I have to agree with Don Carson. Um, this is a challenging passage to us who, who rejoice in the cross, who rejoice in what Jesus has done for us there, whose lives have been transformed and liberated by the life-giving work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It is challenging for us to think about how we therefore interact with the Bible, how we interact with the Old Testament, how we interact with what Jesus tells us to do, what the scriptures tell us to do. Well, I want you to know, and this is so important, that as Jesus teaches this, he underscores and re-underscores and re-re-underscores the significance of obedience in the Christian life. We are called to obedience in the Christian life. Uh, he calls us to heed the Old Testament. There's an old uh, heresy a couple of millennia ago now, millennia and a half ago, over a millennia and a half ago, uh, a heretic, we call him heretics, someone who had a strong opinion contrary to the Bible, a Marcion. And he went about saying that the Old Testament no longer applied in the Christian life. He actually did away with the Old Testament. Well, that was rejected by the Christian community, and we should reject it today. The Old Testament has continuing significance for us. The Old Testament is rich for us as Christians, and it calls us to ways of behaving. There's a certain way of looking at this Old Testament law. We sometimes hear the distinction between civil and ceremonial and moral. That's one way of thinking about the law in the Old Testament, uh, that there were civil laws which had to do with uh, Israel as a civil society, the way their society was organized. Uh, there was a ceremonial law which had to do with the sacrifices and the things that happened in the temple. And then there was the moral law which had to do with things like the Ten Commandments. And there's a certain way of looking at the law in the Old Testament that sort of breaks it down that way. And so sometimes you'll hear it said that... that uh, uh, that there, in Christ there is no place for the civil or ceremonial law. Those have been abrogated. Uh, but there is a continuing place for the moral law, the Ten Commandments and instructions on how communities are supposed to live together and how we live out our moral lives as Christians. And that's a certain way of understanding the, the role of the law. And I'm not saying that those are completely unhelpful categories, but I will say this, it doesn't answer this question because Jesus tells us that not one tiny stroke of the pen is abolished in his coming. No aspect of the civil law 
is abolished. No aspect of the ceremonial law is abolished. The moral law has continuing significance for us. So Jesus doesn't give us that option. In this passage, we're forced to deal with all those tricky passages. The stonings. The legalistic requirements about diet. Jesus says that all those things have have continuing significance. He did not come to abolish them. They do have continuing significance for us. Right now we're doing a series on the Gospel of Matthew, but very soon we're going to be doing a series of sermons from the Old Testament. What will we talk about? Well, the Old Testament, Jesus says, has continuing significance for us. The Old Testament, the law, the prophets, Jesus specifically upholds them. Specifically, and down to every detail. So he doesn't give us the option of sort of scratching out, doing our own version of Marcion, where we go through the Old Testament and sort of mark out things. That's not an option available to us. Jesus upholds the law. And I I think that is a very important point for us to know. See, God loves us enough to tell us the truth about things. God loves us enough to tell us the, the reality that the scriptures teach us about Old and New Testament. He loves us too much to not tell us the reality of life, the reality of sin, the reality of mortality. God loves us far too much not to talk to us about these things. That's one of the blessings of a Lenten season. You know, not every church keeps a liturgical calendar. We do, not slavishly, but but because we think it is part of God's good purpose for us to, to talk to us about the unpleasant things, to talk to us about the things we'd rather not think about very much. So every year we, we have a season devoted to it, every year. Of course, we deal with sin, we deal with the reality of sin all the time, but during Lent it's in a particularly focused way that we look at the reality of sin, that we look at the reality of mortality. The Protestant evangelical reformed magisterial teachers had a way of thinking of this. They said that there were three purposes of the law. Uh, Lutherans emphasized the first purpose, which is to uh, teach us about the reality of sin. And the Lutherans have a great deal to say about how the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount teach us about sin. And, and therefore, we've run to Jesus. And that's one of the purposes of the law. It's to teach us how much we need Jesus. Uh, There's a second purpose, which is to sort of protect society, to restrain evil. And then there is a third purpose of the law, and Reformed Christians are big on teaching this and emphasizing this, that the third purpose of the law is because God loves us enough to tell us the truth. And so there are principles that we can pull out of, out of even the most obscure Old Testament text. We can pull out some truth that can help us understand life as we live it today, some lesson that God wants us to learn. And so these three purposes of the law, all three of them have a role to play as we open the scriptures, as we look at Old Testament, New Testament. We will run to Christ. It will control society in certain moral senses. And God has something he wants to say to us. So every single word of the Bible is grounded in God's love. Every single word of the Old Testament, even the most difficult, challenging passages, flow out of God's love for his people. 
He speaks the truth to us. He, he tells us what pleases him and what displeases him. And even the most obscure text will help us to understand who God is, who we are, and how he wants us to relate to him. So brothers and sisters, please hear me say this. The law in Jesus Christ is upheld. And I don't just mean a few principles. I mean the whole of the law is upheld fully. And it has significance and application in our lives. But not only is the law in Christ upheld, but in Christ, Jesus says, the law is fulfilled. It's fulfilled. That's what he says in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He doesn't abolish. He fulfills. Verse 18, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, uh, uh, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. All is accomplished. Everything the law and the prophets have to say will be fulfilled. Everything the law and the prophets have to say is a sense in which they will be accomplished. Let's think a little bit about that. What does it mean that Jesus fulfilled? What does it mean that Jesus has accomplished what the law meant to accomplish? Uh, the word uh, that in Greek is translated fulfilled actually has within it this idea of completeness. It brings completeness. Uh, Jesus' ministry brought not an ab abolition of the law, but this idea of it completely. Being in him completed, filled out, brought to its fullness. Jesus has done that for us. What does that mean for us in terms of understanding our relationship with law, with what the Old Testament and, and the idea of obedience in a Christian life? Well, Jesus says that in him, all of those things have been fulfilled. So that now you and I, here today, we are called to obedience. We know that God loves us enough to tell us the truth. But all of it is now filtered explicitly through Jesus. Very intentionally. And what's more, it's not an afterthought. It's not something God simply decided to do at some point. It was always the point. All of the Old Testament, all of the law points towards Jesus. And now in Jesus, all of it is fulfilled. And that has enormous significance for us. You see, we never go to the law to find our salvation. We're never called to go to the law in Christ and to find there our salvation. What happens is we come to Christ we follow Jesus, we make a decision to turn our lives and to look towards him. And in that relationship, what we find is not libertinism or some idea that we're on our own, we can do whatever we want. God loves us too much for that. What we actually find is as we look to Jesus, as we repent in Jesus and turn to him, our whole lives are transformed. 
Because we are now in Him. We are in Him. And not only does that mean we will find strength in our struggle against sin. Uh, We will find strength in our struggle against sin. But that strength will flow not from my trying desperately to earn something. It doesn't even flow from my trying desperately to earn something God wants to give me. It actually flows from Jesus having fulfilled everything the law ever intended. Jesus has fulfilled it. He has accomplished it. So, Jesus perfectly fulfilled the civil law. Not one bit of it is abolished. All of it is fulfilled now in Christ. The ceremonial law, the the centuries and centuries and centuries of sacrifices, none of that is abolished. It has been fulfilled now in Christ. The whole significance of the sacrificial system has been fulfilled in Christ and all the requirements of the moral law, by the way. It hasn't been abolished, but in Jesus' sinless perfection, his perfect obedience, you and I who are in Christ are set free from having to earn our salvation by being good enough. If you look down at the end of chapter 6, Uh, Look at verse uh, 48. This is the very end of our Lenten series. We'll get to this for Palm Sunday. Look at what verse 48 says. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's an interesting thing for Jesus to say at the conclusion of his reflection on sin and mortality. You've got to be perfect. And he talks in verse 20 about a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. You know, the one thing the scribes and the Pharisees had down really good was rule keeping. Well, Jesus says we have to have a righteousness uh, that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees or we will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You put those two things together, a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees coupled with verse 48, perfection, And who among us has any hope of entering the kingdom of heaven? If the standard is not only the the biggest rule keepers who ever lived, but absolute God-like perfection, if those are the standards, which of us has any hope? All of us have hope. Why? Because Jesus has fulfilled those requirements. He has accomplished All that the law is pointed towards. And now, in Christ, God still speaks to us loving words that will help shape our decision making. It will help shape the way we live together. It will impact every single relationship in our lives. It will affect the way we live here at church. It will affect the way we live at work. It will affect the way we live at home. It will affect every single relationship. It will be transformed into a Jesus-like life. A life that is becoming more and more like Jesus, yes, and a life that is actually grounded in his sinless perfection. You know, there's a a wristband, my generation, I don't know if the kids today know these anymore, but it used to be a WWJD, what would Jesus do, wristband, and that was a big uh, fad for a long time among young Christians. There may still be a WWJD wristband out there somewhere. What would Jesus do? That's not the worst question you can ask. 
But I'll tell you a better question. What did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? Because what Jesus did makes all the difference in the world. Not only for what we do in gratitude and praise as our lives are transformed, as we look in love and gratitude at Jesus, all of our decisions, everything we do will over time be changed. Every relationship will be changed by what Jesus did. So in Christ, the law is absolutely upheld. It has something to say to us about every decision. And in Christ, the law is completely fulfilled. In the cross of Christ, which we just sang about, in the cross of Christ, now we have perfection. Now we have a a righteousness that exceeds the legalistic rule keepers. We have perfection in Christ. We'll be shaped by that perfection. We will be grateful for that perfection. And it will make a difference. It will make a difference. It moves us from being those who are trying to earn God's favor to those who are grateful. Who are grateful beyond words for what Jesus Christ has done. Who will want to learn to live lives that say, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done for me. Please take my life and help me to show in love what you've done for me. Do you see the difference? Totally different experience. One is grasping, clinging, trying, hopeless, aware of failure. And the other acknowledges God's holiness and says thank you to Jesus for all that he has done for us as we seek to live live together in him. Well, this Lent, we'll be reflecting a lot on sin. We'll be reflecting a lot on mortality. Brothers and sisters, every single bit of it starts here. It starts here that God does have a word to us. He does call us to holiness and he means it. And in Christ Jesus, he has given that perfection which our hearts long for. In Christ, more and more, our hearts long for it. So Lent isn't meant to be a time we beat each other up, push each other down, tell us what awful, awful people we are. Lent is a time when we reflect on our sin and our mortality and Christ's sinlessness. And his immortality which he gives us.